If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, third book in your New Testament. And uh, we are in a series called Servant Jesus. Uh, we are uh, often spend the beginning of the year trying to set out direction, uh, the path in which we feel like the Lord is leading us to go in when it comes to our community and how do we make an impact that points to his glory and benefits our neighbor. And so last year, uh, we put a heavy emphasis on community. Uh, beginning of 2021, we had two community groups. By the end of 2021, we were celebrating the fact that we had 27 community groups that have been started in our church. We believe that life is best done together, that you often overlook sin and run at a pace that is less than the pace that you could actually go if you had Christian community that got shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield with you, that spurred you on in your weaknesses, that prayed for you in your times of trial and tribulation, that multiplied joy by celebrating the victories of God in your life whenever you experiencing them. You see, there's a joy in community in that we get to celebrate together, and there's a joy in community in that we get to divide the burdens of life together. And God's been doing incredible things with us. We're in a group season now, and we would strongly encourage that if you have a sincere intent on growing in your faith this year, that you get into a community group with an open Bible and an open heart, and you allow God to begin to work in that group to develop and mature you as a saint in Christ Jesus. Uh, this year, we recognize that across our departments and really across uh, our church, we still struggle, I still struggle, with what I would call a compartmentalized faith. Uh, many of us have areas in which we honor and acknowledge the lordship and the reign of God over our lives, all the while, while we have a few things that we keep over in the corner, that's my space, that's the area of our life that we would prefer for God to keep his word and authority and lordship out of because we believe that some way, if we were to turn it over, that we would lose something that would not be God's best or best for our life. Like our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, we often believe that outside of God we'll find freedom. But the truth is, any area of your life that is cut off from God is an area of life that is destined to have the opposite of God in your life, which means it will not lead to love, it will not lead to peace, it will not lead to wholeness, it'll lead to brokenness and pain and heartache and hardship until it is surrendered. So it is my ambition as the pastor from this platform to week in and week out attack my own compartmentalized faith until it is decompartmentalized and to challenge you to do the same by the reading and hearing and preaching of God's word by the spirit of God until you have a decompartmentalized faith and a completely surrendered life over to the king of kings and the lord of lords until his reign and rule come in its full fruition and return at his second coming. I want Jesus to take the reins of your life in a way that you are afraid to give him control over. I want you to give him the pain that you've entrusted to no one and you've sulked in and allowed your life to be bitterly marked by. I want you to give Jesus all of your weakness and failure that you think you've got to make up for in self-righteous religious effort because there is no way that you will ever pay back what God extends to give through his grace and his mercy over your life. And the way that we are decompartmentalizing our faith is by taking the posture of a servant in 2023 because servants are teachable servants learn servants are humble you see this is the ambition that we have for you this year we want you to be a growing disciple and in order for you to be a growing disciple you've got to be a learner and in order to be a learner you have to be teachable 
Some of you came into this church this morning with nothing new to learn. You came in with the attitude of impress me. We heard there's a barefoot preacher that stands on the stage and spits a lot, runs around. Impress me. What can he teach me from the word of God? Don't overestimate, or excuse me, don't underestimate Christ in me. It is not me that you need to be impressed with. It's the potential of Christ at work through me. He's taken the foolish things of the world, that's me, so that he could confound the wise. You're welcome. This is what we're in. We are in this moment where we get the opportunity to open up our Bibles and allow the Holy Spirit through the Word to teach us, to transform our mind so that we see Jesus clear, so that we understand His gospel in a much more effective way. And our lives then move from being built on sand to being built on the rock of the Word of Jesus Christ. But in order for you to be a disciple that grows, you've got to be a learner. In order to be a learner, you've got to be teachable. And in order to be teachable, you have to be humble. Which, if I can be honest, is one of the biggest battles that I have in my life. I have one good day, and I immediately start thinking that I can drift from God and live a life that will not need to be as desperately dependent upon Him as I was whenever I knew I needed Him. And for some of you, the greatest problem that you have is that you constantly find yourself in arrogance because you drift in your dependency upon Jesus. Oh, he's preaching good this morning. You can go ahead and give him praise for that. So, our goal is that you'll be a disciple that grows. In order to grow, you've got to learn. If you want to be a learner, you've got to be teachable. In order to be teachable, you've got to be humble. And God's prescription for keeping you humble is ongoing, active, non-compartmentalized, non-planned-by-your-preacher service. It's you looking at the world with kingdom eyes. It's you, by the Spirit, waking up and expecting that there's work to be done for His glory, name, and renown. And so we're inviting you into an active following the suffering servant whose name is Jesus, who invites us into suffering service to His name first and our neighbor Second, if you want to live a great life, you've got to be a part of the great things that the Bible has called great. There's a great commission. There's a great commandment. And we want to implement the great commandment in our daily living over the weeks and months to come. So we're looking at the example of Christ over the next four weeks. Today we're looking at John chapter 13. It's at the very end of his ministry. And we want to invite you to open up your Bible and read with us. Look at what it says. John 13, verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. A couple notes in verse 1 here. Uh, The first is there is an observance of Passover that's taking place. This was established back in the Old Testament whenever Moses had gone to Pharaoh after a series of plagues. Pharaoh had decided to let the people of God go, but Pharaoh had not yet gotten on plan. Excuse me, God had decided he was going to let the people go, but Pharaoh hadn't gotten on board with the plan. So the angel of death was going to come, and it was going to take the firstborn son in all of the land, except for the houses that had the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. They were to eat a meal. They were to observe this and reflect upon it as a reminder of ultimately the coming sacrificial lamb for us in Jesus who would shed his blood so that we could be redeemed for our sins. And so they had been observing for years, over and over again, this Passover feast, awaiting the day where the real sacrificial lamb would come. And this would be the last time that they would observe it in this way because now the real sacrificial lamb was here and he was about to go to the cross where he would be our substitute, standing in our place, make, becoming sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So it's the season of Passover. The second thing that we know is that Jesus knew his time was coming to an end. There was an intentionality that Jesus lived by. It's an example that I think that we can learn from. He consistently knew 
uh, that there was a mission that he had to do. In fact, prior to this text, it says that he turned his attention towards Jerusalem, which was a way to say that he knew that he was in every relationship and encounter and conversation going towards his end at Calvary. I would submit to you that you and I could benefit from a similar intentionality, a knowledge that knows that we have been given the Holy Spirit for every good work that we've been called to today, but we are not promised tomorrow, and that shouldn't lead us into a uh, fear of missing out lifestyle, but it should lead us out to an intentionally focused on the things that will matter with an eternity lifestyle. That you and I should set, as the scriptures say, our eyes on what's above, our minds on what's above, and not what's on the earth below. That we should not, as people that are a part of God's kingdom, be entangled, as the Apostle Paul would say, in civilian affairs. You see, a lot of you are consumed with anxiety and worry. That is, and I understand, some of you need medicine, and that's okay, but my point is some of you are entangled in that because you've been wrapped up in civilian affairs instead of remembering your position within the kingdom of God, what you've been put on this earth to do and to be a part of. So he knows his time is coming to an end. It's the season of Passover. They're about to take the Passover feast together. And then it says he loved them throughout his entire ministry. That is to say that Jesus demonstrated covenantal love in the way that he discipled and walked with his disciples while they were on earth. Uh, Many of you know transactional love. Many of you have sung songs in your car after you had to deal with a wankster who you thought was going to be a man of God who turned out to be nothing more than a fake imposter of God. And you've thought to yourself, real love, I'm searching for some real love. Three of y'all know what that is. The rest of you and I, I'll move on. My, My point is we all desire the love that only God can give. And in order for you to experience that relationally from another human being, they must have received from God his love in order to extend God's love to you. This is why the Bible says you shouldn't be unequally yoked. Because whenever you start dating people who are first name Luke, last name Warm, you find yourself not getting from... You find yourself not getting from them the kind of love that only God can give you, and he desires in marital relationship to extend through you should the day come where he brings the two of you together. You see, Jesus has the perfect tension of what I would call tough and tender, which is what real love is. Real love is tough in that sometimes because you love someone, you have the hard conversation with them anyway. You correct them because you don't want the destination of the decision that they've made to be realized at the end of the path that it'll lead them to. And so you confront them. So that means sometimes you have to rebuke because anyone a father loves, he corrects, the scriptures teach us. And sometimes you've called people unloving that have actually been the most loving to you because they care about your future, they care about your interests, and they were honest enough to come to your face and not behind your back and tell you the truth. You see, Jesus had confronted his disciples, corrected his disciples, and taught his disciples over and over again. He taught them things that were convenient. He taught them things that were difficult. At one point in time, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be a part of me. And many people left. And Jesus looked at the disciples and says, do y'all want to go too? And Pete's like, where are we going to (laughs) go? We don't really have many options right now. Am I making sense? So he loved them throughout the entirety of his life. He was tough, but he was tender. There were tender moments where they laughed and they enjoyed life together on the journey. But he knew that his time here physically on the earth was coming to an end. And that that love that he had marked them by, led them with, would serve them on the other side of what would come next. And then it says he loved them until the end. Literally, he loved them in the fullness of his love. And how do we know that? Because verse 2 
on gives the final demonstration of the kind of love that, God had, uh, that Christ had given his disciples throughout the entirety of his life. Look at it with me. He loved them to the end so much so that he demonstrates it, and we see it in verse 2. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that Judas had already been paid to betray Jesus. It suggests the idea that potentially Judas is in the room with the money to betray Jesus on him. You should stow that in the back of your mind in regards to what Jesus is about to do. It was time for supper. The devil had already prompted Jesus, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything and that he had come from God and will return to God. So let me be very clear. Some believe that after his sacrifice, he earned the authority to be the name that is above every other name. But the only reason he could do what he was about to do was because he already had the name. He already had the authority. Because he already was the son of God, he knew what he must do to make the son of men become children of God. And so he gave up his right uh, to be blameless to be faultless so that he could step into our place and be exchanged in our position. 2 Corinthians lays this out when it says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ. This is what he's done for you. He is your substitute. That's why self-righteous pursuits are so repulsive to God. That's why religious self-effort of rule-keeping and you thinking that you can be good enough and approvable enough before God is so repulsive to him. Because unless your name is Jesus and you have been blameless from birth, you can't make it. But what's amazing is that Jesus, who is blameless and perfect, he steps in your place and says, I'll pay the bill for you. You see, the cost to get you right came at the very life of the Son. Where you stand apart from Jesus is condemned in sin. But that was not God's desire for you. So he sent the Son after you. And he stood in your, in your place, wrapped in flesh, living the life you couldn't live, dying the death you deserve, that you deserve to die, so that he could transfer you over into his kingdom by the blood and sacrifice of the Savior. So, so stop thinking that you're going to do something that's going to prove that you're worthy of God. We're not worthy. That's why it's grace and mercy that we have what we have. That's why we should be humble. That's why we should be teachable. That's why we should be learners. We obviously don't know much apart from God. And it's only in Christ that we've been made right before God. So it should make sense to us that clinging to Christ is a desperate person that needs to learn from Christ and depend on his power would be a natural thing for us. But for many of us, Jesus is a mere rabbit's foot on a keychain. He's someone we look to in a superstitious way whenever everything else within our own abilities falls insufficiently short of the thing that we need in our life. And that should be repented of. He comes into the room. They're taking the Passover feast. Verse uh, 4 says, He got up from the table as the dinner commenced. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. This was shocking. This didn't make sense. Jesus was the guest of honor. Jesus was the head of the table. Jesus was the reason they all were there. Yet Jesus goes to the doorman's position. The lowest position of the house was the foot washer. It was the entry level job. It was the dirty job of Jerusalem's day. And Jesus takes the position, though he's the honored guest, the centerpiece of the entire event, 
into the position of the lowest servant at the entire place. He's demonstrating something for us that if you'll allow me the joy of sharing with you, it's a, uh, what we would call an Easter egg. It's pointing to the gospel in a way that many don't pick up on whenever they read it. Whenever you go to Disney World uh, or Disneyland, they hide Easter eggs on their rides. What I mean is they hide little Mickey Mouse ears in random places, and you can make it a game as you go around Disney to try and identify every little mouse ear that you find. There's one in Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, there's one on Splash Mountain that you can find where randomly you'll see stuff, and you say, oh, that's a Mickey Mouse head. Stop listening to me, government. Uh, that's my watch. Uh, my my, my point is, what he's, what he's doing here is he's demonstrating the gospel that goes straight over the head of the disciples. You see, you and I can't go into the Father's house because of our sin. Uh, we've got muck on us that keeps us from being an honored guest at his table. The Father desired for us to be able to come into his house, but someone had to clean the muck off of our feet. So the Son comes to the door. Whenever you show up to a party, you're not there for the person at the door. You're for the, there for the person that's on the inside of the house. But the son takes the lowest position, and he cleans off of us what keeps us from being able to enter the house. You see, this is the gospel. Jesus has decided to come down and lower himself into the form of living the life that we failed to live, a life that was honoring to the Father by the Spirit, so that in Christ you could experience forgiveness that you could not earn and receive. And as a result of cleaning off our feet, we now get to be a part of the heavenly feast where the cup gets raised and the name of the Lord gets praised forever because of the service of the one who was Lord and King who went to the door to wash the feet. So he takes the position of a servant. The second thing we should note here is he washes all the disciples' feet. That means he washes Judas, money in his pocket, betrayers, feet. That's real love. See, God extends his love to all, even when it's not returned from all. You are loved. How am I loved? He's given you common grace. He allows you to live on his planet, breathing his air with a heart that's beating without you telling it to beat so that you might see it, observe it, and begin to question and look up to know the God that is above and at work in it. You have taste buds that taste food. Many of you have already begun to contemplate and think, where will we go? What will we eat when this guy wraps it up finally? That's a common grace. You've had the ability to smell whenever he or she smells good and whenever those kids don't smell good and need a bath. It's a grace. You see, he extends love to us even when it's not reciprocated from us, and it comes in the form of his grace. And perhaps one of the most amazing moments of service and grace is whenever he kneels before a true enemy and washes his feet. It makes sense then that he would be able to look at you and me and say, love your enemies. Why? Because he washed the feet of his. Not only does he wash the feet of Judas, let's not make out as if Judas is the only one that is corrupt and in need of salvation and in need of intervention from God. No, no, no. I mean, there's Peter, the ear-whacking, like, over-promising, under-delivering, going to cuss at a girl over a burning barrel to deny Jesus, Peter, <laughs> who's going to get his feet washed and make a big mess out of the whole story in just a second. There's uh, James and John, who just a chapter or two earlier are arguing about who gets the seat in second and third position with Jesus, dividing the entire group of the disciples up as Jesus is looking towards his own crucifixion and death, who are more concerned about their seats 
than they are concerned about their service of the king. Uh, there's Thomas, who the whole way has been doubting everything that he's seen and experienced. I know we give him a bad rap, but he comes in after the resurrection of Christ and doesn't take into account the witness of anyone, doubts it. And Jesus washes his feet. What am I trying to say? Jesus still washes the feet of a diverse but very broken people. Your story may look like one of intentional betrayal. Your story may look like one of misplaced self-interest and pride. Your story may look like one of high questioning and doubts, but nonetheless, Jesus serves. That's what he does. Now, he comes to Peter in the story in verse 6, and it kind of turns the page. Are you still with me? Can I preach a little bit? Or are you so hot that you're not wanting to pay attention no more? Verse 6, when Jesus, he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Notice a few things. The text suggests that he's already washed several of the disciples' feet. He ends up washing all of their feet. But Peter's like, you don't have to wash mine, Jesus. They're dirty, but I'm Peter. You see the concept that's going on here? Other people could be served in this way, and Peter was not appalled. Yeah, they're dirty. But the idea that Peter... The rock, Peter, his right hand, you know, best man with him through thick and thin. That is that Peter still needs Jesus' service. Often gets covered up by us thinking that he's actually trying to be humble. But what he's really trying to do is put out a false humility of an idea that he now doesn't need as much grace as he did on the first day now that he's arrived to this day. It's been several years, Jesus. I've been walking with you. I don't need you to clean myself up. I'll clean my own self up. You don't need to clean me up. You see how quickly it is to start a life that's built on the gospel and move back into a life that's built on your own effort? How many of you have started in a position of power on Christ and have moved to a position of having no power because you move back into your own self-interest and flesh? The Bible would call this the way of the flesh versus the way of the spirit. You and I have to die every single day, take up our cross and follow Jesus if we want to live by his way. But if we want to live by our way, just wake up and do what you normally do. Drink a cup of coffee, ignore your kids, look at your phone too much, and, you know, see where that, where that gets you. Amen. I'm not out of time. I'm going to keep going. Praise the praise alarm. It's a praise break. <laughs> he comes and says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Why do you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will? Ooh, that's a good word. Let me talk about that for a minute. This is the way the providence of God works. When God moves in providence, you often don't know what's going on while it's happening. You see, God often works throughout the Bible with two ways. He miraculously steps in and does the supernatural. He parts waters. He rains down manna. He opens blind eyes. He raises the dead. Most of us, we only want God to work in that way in our life. How many of you would rather God work in just a miraculous, it's fixed in a moment, than providence, I'm going to work it for glory in a moment to come in the future that is yet to be determined? Here's the problem. Most often, God works in providence. Providence cannot be seen through the windshield. It has to be seen through the rear view. Peter cannot, through the windshield, see what Jesus is doing. It will not be until he looks into the rear view that he understands what Christ is doing. For many of you, you're in your life in a circumstance and season where through the windshield, it looks foggy. It looks unclear. Oh, this is so good. I mean, you just don't know what's going on. And you came into church and you're like, oh, is God real? Does he care? Is he active? Is he present? What's he doing? I don't know, but I'm singing a song about it. Even when I can't feel it. You and, 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 and you're in here and you're like, I'm looking, but, I'm not, but the problem is you're not looking in the right direction. When you're in a season of providence, you've got to look in the rear view. I know, never look back, never look back, no regrets, yellow. That's stupid. 
That's, that's not biblical. Instead, when you look in the rear view, what do you see? You see moments where you thought God was absent, but he was absolutely at work. You begin to recognize that while you were playing checkers and trying to play a quick game, he was playing chess and setting up something that you did not anticipate to be a reality in your life. You see, it's helpful for you to remember from time to time in a season where the windshield doesn't look clear that the rear view reminds you of a God who is clear in all of his actions and in every season of your life. Now, let me give you a minute for a praise break. So Peter doesn't understand what's going on. So he doubles down. That's what Peter does. That's why I like Peter, because I'm stupid, and I like to multiply stupid and think it'll get smart. (laughs) So I take stupid, I multiply by stupid, and I'm like, we're going to get, and this is what happens. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. This is the problem. You see, many of you think you can clean yourself up and get to God, but the problem is you can't do the cleaning. You have to be cleaned by God in order to be received by God. And until his blood washes you clean, you cannot be received. That's why it's grace. That's why it's mercy. That's why we call it a relationship and not a religion. Because it comes down to you receiving Christ, doing on your behalf what you cannot do for yourself. And some of you in your pride have spent 50, 60 years with a bone called stiff-necked. That refuses to receive from Christ what you cannot earn by your effort. He says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are, what is he saying? You already belong to me. I've already washed you clean. But as disciples who live in this world, Your feet are going to get dirty, and you're going to need to be reminded that it's not by your effort, but it's by my grace that you are washed clean. You see, a lot of you as sons and daughters of God, in your mind, have wandered away. But can I just remind you of one of my favorite stories? I'm going to whether you want me to or not. Can I remind you of one of my favorite stories? It's the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal who goes far away from God, but what's his last name? Son. It never changes. He belonged in the house of the father. Even when he was off squandering away his entire inheritance, he still had the last name son. So whenever the son turned to come home, the father was already waiting on him and didn't allow him to to take the walk of shame, but instead threw the dirty robe off of him, put a clean robe on him, put the ring of sonship on his finger and and, uh, shoes on his feet because you went barefoot if you were a slave, but you wore shoes if you were a son. So that whenever he walked through town, he didn't walk through in his shame, but he walked through in the presence of his father who was welcoming him back into his house. You see, some of you, here's the deal, you've wandered, but God has not wandered in his love from you. You've forsaken the purpose of God, but God has not forsaken his purpose over your life. And the beauty of what we have is a grace that won't relent, a love that doesn't quit. And in Christ Jesus, no matter where you go or what you do, once you are in Christ, you are in his hand, and no one will pluck you out. Last time I read the text. Does this make sense? So he says to Peter, we don't need to wash your whole body. We need to wash your feet. But then he puts in a caveat. What's the caveat? But now all of you are clean. It's a grace. It's a confrontation. It's an opportunity for the battling of Judas to wrestle with the presence of a Savior that desires something different for him. You see, he's in the moment, too proud to be served. And in that moment, there's another that stands with him who refuses to be served. He rejects Jesus and walks away from him. Why does it matter that we receive the service of Christ? 
Because every aspect of the Christian life is a grace from Jesus. There will not be a moment of the Christian journey where we can uh, say, I got it apart from Christ's grace. Pride will trick you into thinking that you aren't as grace needy as you were when you began. But don't be deceived. Apart from his consistent serving grace, we cannot be clean. Why do we need to be served? Because we cannot be clean. But number two, because you cannot extend service until you've been served. You see, it is impossible to extend Christ-like grace apart from having experienced it first. If Peter does not allow this moment to happen, then in the future he will not know what it means to be on the other side of the towel. It's the service of Christ that equips him for service on the towel later in life for others. You see, Peter must learn to receive Christ's grace before he can in turn extend it. And that's what Jesus calls him to after he puts the towel off and puts his robe back on. Look at the text with me in verse 12. It says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? A clear question for many of you as followers of Jesus is the answer, no. It's the posture of a learner. I don't know what you're doing. (laughs) The disciples struggled with this one. So Jesus just continues teaching. Do you know what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. I am teacher, I am your rabbi, I am the master teacher, I am Lord. Lord's a word that's used to describe the might of God, the the ability of God. I am mighty, and I am great, and I am the teacher. And since I, verse 14, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. This is why, of millions of reasons, why I love Jesus. Before he calls his disciples to serve, he first exemplifies it and demonstrates it for them in his own service to him. They experienced Christ's service before they extended it to others. And the same is true in his calls to other areas of our life. Before we're called to love our neighbor, we're first called to be uh, people that experience his love. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So before we love others, we first experience the love of Christ. I believe the Christian that loves the greatest is the one who knows they have been loved the greatest by Christ. We forgive because he's forgiven us, Ephesians 4.32. We give the kingdom of God everywhere we go because we have received the kingdom of God, Matthew 10, 5, and 8. And we serve because we have been served by the chief servant, Christ, in our life. You see, many of you have yet to allow him to wash your feet. You've yet to allow him to serve you as your king and your Lord. Therefore, though you are religious, you do not have any power in your religious practice. All you have is the ability to get bitter, the ability to count up your acts of service that have not been reciprocated because you've not first been served by the Savior who doesn't count before he extends his service to you. But whenever I know I've been served by Christ, whenever I know I've been loved by Christ, whenever I know I've been forgiven by Christ, then in turn, by the power of Christ, I can extend his service, I can extend his love, and I can extend his forgiveness. You see, before you're set out on this mission, you're first called to be served by the king of the mission. His desire for you today, I believe, is to serve you by allowing you to come to him in your humility and your brokenness and in your victories and in your self-pride and self-interest and declare dependency upon him so that as you acknowledge your weakness and need of him, you can rise in the strength of knowing that he is with you and providing for you everything you need for every good work that he has called you So we're going to open the altar, and we're going to invite you to do something scary. 
And that's leave your seat and bend your knee and profess absolute dependency upon him. For the Christian who's got muck on their feet, we invite you to allow him to serve you by cleaning your feet today. You are forgiven. It came at a high cost. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. Jesus wants a relationship with you. But last night, I used. Jesus wants a relationship with you. But last night, I cheated. Jesus wants a relationship with you. But last night, I denied him and ran as far as I could from him. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Well, I'm still a drunk. Jesus wants a relationship with you. I'm already on my third marriage. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Let me get controversial. I'm gay. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Jesus wants a relationship with you. This is his intention. He serves the Judases and he serves the people that we think are the greatest of saints. Jesus wants a relationship with you. And the only thing that keeps you from relationship with him is your own pride and indifference to repent and turn to him. So, repent. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. He is not running because of your downside from you, but he runs to you because he sees your downside and you, he knows you need him. So we're going to respond and then we're going to take communion together. Our prayer team is going to come forward. If you need to have a relationship with Jesus that does not exist, they'll talk to you about what that means. If you need to repent of sin in your life, they'll talk to you and pray with you over here at the altar. You move as the Lord leads in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and let's respond.